All right, welcome back to episode seven of the Play Caller podcast. I've taken another bit of a hiatus here. It's been another couple of weeks, about a week and a half. I really need to hammer down some sort of schedule here of when I'm going to record and when I'm going to release these podcasts. It's just been a little tough this semester so far with classes and things like that. But regardless, this episode, I want to give a quick breakdown of the Super Bowl. I know it's been a while, so I'm going to keep that very quick, probably just the first minute or two of this podcast, I'd say. And then after that, I really want to get into the All-Star Game, the NBA All-Star Game. And I mean, it was obviously a bit of a disaster from a lot of people's accounts, um, especially on social media. But I want to give some of the good and some of the bad that I saw and potentially how we can fix that moving forward, how the NBA can fix that. Um, You know, a lot of a lot of pretty interesting ideas have been thrown out there, and I just want to give my opinion on them. So let's go ahead and jump right into the Super Bowl. Again, happened a couple weeks ago now, so it's a bit outdated, but I'd have to say it's one of the top three, certainly top five Super Bowls that I've ever watched. It was such a good game. Um, the first half was really boring, I have to say. It it really was at, moving at a slow pace. It seemed like the Chiefs, honestly, were really being outclassed on each side of the ball in the first half, if we're being completely honest. They were kind of getting pushed around at the line of scrimmage, which was surprising. Um, and I saw a tweet from Colin Cowherd at halftime that I thought was pretty funny. He said... The first half has been a letdown. Usher's been a letdown. Let's hope Patrick Mahomes can save us in the second half. And Patrick Mahomes did save us in the second half. He once again comes through in the clutch, just finds a way to win the game. 34 of 46, 333 yards, two touchdowns, that one terrible pick. Um, That wasn't a great throw, wasn't a great read, seemed a little bit desperate, but the story of the game was that Chiefs defense, and after that pick, the Chiefs defense quickly got the 49ers off the field with a three and out. And yeah, I think the majority of Patrick Mahomes' 333 yards really came in the second half, especially the fourth quarter in overtime. I know overtime, he was a perfect eight for eight, I want to say, and led the Chiefs down to the eventual game-winning touchdown. But again, I don't really want to do too much of an in-depth breakdown here, just couple of takeaways. Patrick Mahomes has obviously elevated himself even further now to the top quarterback in the league. It's not even a question. I mean, I don't think it ever was, but especially in this postseason, heading into this postseason, there were a lot of questions of, you know, is Patrick Mahomes slowing down? He was still playing good this season, obviously, but more picks, not as accurate, not as many yards, more of a game manager in a sense I don't want to use the term game manager for Patrick Mahomes really ever but that's what some people were saying he was turning into and then obviously you saw one of the toughest roads to the Super Bowl I believe ever by strength of opponent's face and they had to win two of those on the road in two very difficult environments which only adds on to the case that this really was one of the greatest runs we've ever seen in the NFL specifically defensively the Chiefs faced the numbers two three four and six offenses in the playoffs which combined to average 28.3 points per game this season when the Kansas City Chiefs played them in the playoffs though they averaged 15.8 which means Spagnola shaved off 12 and a half points of four of the best offenses in the NFL so defensively and as a whole one of the greatest runs again that we've seen in the modern day NFL I also think this run has to be just incredibly demoralizing for the rest of the league, especially moving forward. When you look at, you know, last season, people were saying before the season and throughout the season that the Chiefs were rebuilding. And now this season, it was being said that this is just a down year, another kind of rebuilding year for this Kansas City Chiefs team, a bit of a Super Bowl slump, maybe you could say. 
And their path throughout the regular season, I know I just touched on their path in the playoffs, but throughout the entire season really was just so tough that it really gets to a point where these other teams have to have to sit there and think, what can we do? I mean, you look at to start the season, Mahomes was the most expensive cap hit in the NFL at $37 million. His offensive line was weakened this season. His wide receiver one was a rookie out of SMU. They were forced to play six straight games at a rest disadvantage weeks 12 through 17 to end the season. And this is the only time a team has had to do that in NFL history. They had to play in Germany. They didn't get a first round bye. They had to play on the road in the divisional round as an underdog. They had to do that once again in the conference championship round as an underdog. They were underdogs in the Super Bowl and were losing by double digits heading into halftime. I mean, if you're not going to get him this year, when are you ever going to beat Mahomes if you look at the totality of the season? Moving forward, a more gelled, cohesive offense. Rasheed Rice is only getting better. They have a little bit of cap space, maybe. I would say the only downfalls are they may lose Chris Jones and they may lose Jadarius Sneed, their top corner in free agency, but... I think if they lose a corner, it can be a little bit easier. They have um, already a really good secondary around him and Spagnola. Chris Jones might be a little more difficult to recoup just because that interior defensive line is such a tough position to really build a star in, um, unless they're really like a top five pick, which obviously the Chiefs are not going to have anytime soon. But besides those two players on defense, this team really seems to only be getting better moving forward. They're so young in a lot of many key positions. Just, just a really tough year if you're any other team. The Bills, the Ravens, the Dolphins. I don't know what you can do to beat this Chiefs team moving forward if you didn't beat them this year. Last note on this game, and I wanted to say just a bit of a victory lap here, you could say. If you go back and listen to my Super Bowl predictions, just like to pat myself on the back. Um, all my predictions came true, so I'm not going to say I'm a betting guru, but I'm a betting guru, okay? Um, over 46 and a half, Chiefs cover the spread, and the Chiefs money line all hit. Kind of predicted this Kyle Shanahan breakdown too with the overtime rules and the Chiefs coming back in the second half. I said Kyle Shanahan's really good going into games, has a really good game plan to get out in front, but then ultimately can get a little bit stubborn in his schematics and can lose games even when they're ahead by double digits, and all of these things came true, so... You know, next next season, if this podcast is still around, just make sure you remember this moment right here and always tail my bets. But that's just me. I want to get into the next topic now. Enough about the Super Bowl, enough about football. The NBA All-Star Game. Okay, a lot of bad things obviously coming out. A lot of bad PR around this game. It was, it was a pretty excruciating watch, I will say. The actual game especially and the dunk contest. But let's start with some of the good. Um... I really love the nods to sort of grassroots Indiana basketball throughout the warmups. Um, they had a couple good interviews with Reggie Miller. They brought out some Indiana legends before the game, Larry Bird, Oscar Robertson. Um, they kept mentioning, you know, the historical background of Indiana. I thought those were all really nice touches. However, there are some downsides even to that that I'm going to talk about later that I really didn't like seeing mostly from the media. Um, another thing I liked, though, was the Steph versus Sabrina competition, the three-point shootout. I thought the hype going into it was so exciting, and then I think it exceeded all the hype. It certainly exceeded my expectations. Um, both players were so competitive. Sabrina opted to shoot from the NBA line, which I thought silenced so many critics that would have been there had she not. 
Both players performed, like I just said, incredibly well. They both, in fact, would have won the actual NBA three-point contest had they been competing in that. Sabrina scored 26, Steph with 29. Just electric throughout. And I'm also really excited to see where they take this thing in the future. I know there's people talking about possibly next year having a bit of a duo competition where it's Steph and Clay versus Sabrina and potentially Caitlin Clark if she opts to go into the WNBA next season, as many are predicting she will. And I think not only would that be incredibly exciting to watch and hopefully as good as it was this year in terms of competitiveness between those two teams, but I also think this competition as a whole is just really moving the game of basketball forward when you talk about women's sports, when you talk about NBA fans even watching Steph Curry, one of the greats of all time in NBA history, kind of fade out. He's still obviously one of the top players in the league and he has his own competition. So all of that gelled into one. I think it's this is a really beneficial event for the NBA. And if they continue to do this throughout the All-Stars moving forward, I think it would be great for both leagues, the NBA and the WNBA. And staying on the topic of the three-point shootout, I really like the actual three-point shootout again this year. I think it's sort of in the last few years slowly becoming the peak of All-Star Weekend. You know, it used to be the game and then sort of the dunk contest were the two far and away best events. And now I think the three-point contest is kind of overtaking the dunk contest. And this year it overtook both the game and the dunk contest, obviously. Both of those were sort of a disaster. But the three-point contest, these players always come and they always are really competitive. There were, I think, three players who hit 26 in the first round. So it was really close, really competitive. And this is also where the stars are kind of going. You see Trey Young, Damian Lillard, Carl Anthony Towns, all of these big-name guys that you don't get in the dunk contest usually. This year, Jalen Brown obviously participated in the dunk contest. But you know, that's where the stars are is a three-point contest. And when they're really competitive and it's really close throughout the entire competition, like we saw this year, it can be really exciting and really electric. Um, so I thought that event was great. Obviously, Damian Lillard won that as well as the All-Star Game MVP. But I thought both of those events, the three-point contest, as well as the Steph versus Sabrina shootouts were sort of the highlights of this All-Star weekend. Now, getting into the game itself, that's sort of a different story. Obviously, the highest scoring all-star game in history with a score of 211 to 186. Carl Anthony Town on the losing team and coming off the bench had 50 points. So obviously not a great showing, a real lack of effort in terms of everybody um, on either side, east or west. And I have to say, I'm probably the biggest Luka fan you guys will ever run into. I'm from Dallas, lived there my whole life. I love Luka, I love the Mavs. But I think it really hurts the game when two of the top three, certainly top five players in the league in Luka and Jokic are the two players in the game taking it the least serious and just sort of absolutely goofing off the entire time. But I also can't really blame them. And Luka had a really good point in his post-game press conference. He basically said something along the lines of, why should I give any effort on offense when no one is giving any effort on defense? Which makes sense because, I mean, you saw Damian Lillard in this game, who obviously won the MVP it seemed like every time he touched the ball, he was really trying to score um, for a majority of the game. He was obviously shooting from half court and things like that. But beyond that, he didn't really pass the ball much. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this guy's sort of a try hard almost. Like, why is he trying so hard? No one else is trying. No one's even defending him. Can't he just, like, pass the ball and have some fun? But then I catch myself and I'm like, why would I want him to do that? This This is what I should be looking forward to watching. But he just sticks out like a sore thumb when everyone else on the court is not trying. Everyone's walking, standing around, and then you just kind of want everyone to fit that mold or else they really stand out. And 
you know, I can't blame Luca for not really trying when that's the case. And that kind of brings me to my next point with Stephen A. Smith and Kendrick Perkins, a clip I saw of them. And side note, I'm realizing now I kind of skipped over the dunk contest, but I think in terms of the dunk contest and why fans are so disappointed with that lately is not the lack of stars, but rather the lack of dunks that are even humanly possible at this point that are different than what we've already seen. I think it's kind of been downhill since Aaron Gordon hasn't participated, especially since 2016. I mean, that was obviously, in my opinion, the greatest dunk contest ever, but I think that really comes down to, and we saw Jalen Brown in it this year, which is a big name, um, but I don't think it's really a lack of star problem. Like I just said, I think it's just there's how many more dunks can you do that are going to be new and impressive to fans when, you know, we've kind of reached the ceiling of human capabilities as of right now, unless you want to start pulling professional dunkers off the street, which I think would sort of ruin the dunk contest and the prestige of it in terms of NBA and G League guys. But Anyway, back to my main point about Stephen A. and Kedrick Perkins. I, I'm seeing them talk about how LeBron James is solely responsible for ruining the dunk contest. And I just want to say no, Stephen A. People like you in the media are responsible for the downfall of the dunk contest. Matter of fact, people like you in the media are directly responsible for the downfall of the All-Star game in its entirety. I've seen J.J. Redick talk about this recently. I've seen Nick Wright talk about this on occasion. But NBA discourse has evolved into weighing rings so much in debates over player rankings and GOAT conversations that it's gotten to a point where literally nothing else matters to these players. One of the main reasons the All-Star game used to be so competitive and so exciting to watch, aside from just the old head, you know, pride in the game and things like that, was there were guys like Kobe who were playing their asses off trying to get the All-Star game MVP because it meant something. And that's why the award is named after Kobe Bryant. He, he always went into that game with a such such a ferocity. He wanted the All-Star Game MVP. We used to show people stat lines for greatest seasons ever. MVP, Defensive Player of the Year, All-Star Game MVP, right? I mean, that's not included at all anymore. There's there's players throughout the league who don't even care if they're All-Stars. Look at Jimmy Butler. Look at Jamal Murray, right? These guys are exceptional players, obviously top of the league, but only when it comes time to the playoffs. We've diminished all of the regular season accolades, even MVP, you see Joel Embiid won the MVP last year. He's putting up historical stats for the center position even this year before he got hurt. And I rarely see him in conversations for top five players in the league. And I'm no Joel Embiid fanboy or anything. I actually don't particularly like watching him play just because I feel like he really baits for free throws a lot of the times. But his greatness is undeniable. And what has the conversation surrounding him been the past few seasons? He chokes in the playoffs, right? He falls short of the championship. Giannis, even, before he won the finals in 2021, I believe, it was he's undeserving of these MVPs because he can't lead his team to the championship. When you look at people like Stephen A. Smith, people like Skip Bayless on, on TV every single day, they just rank players. And what is the deciding factor when you're ranking players? It's not all-stars. It's not MVPs. It's not defense player of the years. It's how many rings do you have? How many championships do you have to show for it? And again, the players have reacted accordingly. Jimmy Butler is probably the best example I've seen of this. Excuse my language, but he doesn't give a single fuck about the entire regular season. He doesn't care about load management. He doesn't care about the 65-game threshold for awards. He doesn't care about all-star game appearances. Nonetheless, an all-star game MVP, all he wants to do is win a championship because he knows that's what matters. And maybe that's sort of hardwired into his brain. I know his 
story as a child and a story as a college student growing up is is a really rough one but there's plenty of players like that and why should we expect these players to try at all in the all-star game when that's the case why waste your energy why risk injury why do any of that when you know nothing that happens in this all-star game matters whatsoever when you're looking at your career overall nonetheless just this particular season and we heard anthony edwards kind of echo that same sentiment when he just called it basically a vacation for all the players he was literally like why should i try this is a vacation for me i'm not going to try at all he was shooting with his left hand in the skills competition for god's sake i mean these guys don't care and really nor should they when everything you hear in the media and everything you hear online is about the playoffs and it's about championships so how do you fix the all-star game going forward i think first of all and this goes back to the very first topic i touched on in the things that i like about the all-star game this year which was the indiana sort of historical aspect behind it i think and i haven't heard too many people talk about this but i think the nba is probably the worst league out of the four major sport leagues in the u.s at acknowledging their history and really accepting that as a part of their league and i don't know if it's a generational thing i know the nba tends to attract younger fans a younger demographic um they're also probably one of the younger leagues in the u.s i know the nfl and the mlb have both been along for such a long time whereas the nba obviously it's been around a long time but there was the aba at one point who merged with the nba and it's just it's a younger league in general it wasn't even popular until really the 80s when there was bird and magic and jordan came in and really propelled it to the national scale that it is now but just to keep this brief you see leagues like the nfl really embracing lambeau field in green bay wisconsin or whatever you see the pittsburgh steelers even their fan base and their aura in the nfl is so great even the st louis cardinals in the mlb I just feel like these other leagues do a much better job of accepting that as part of their history and really promoting that rather than, you know, always wanting to shift to bigger markets and always wanting, I feel like the NBA does that more than any other league. And I get it in terms of money and revenue and capacity, even to hold people at events like the all-star game. But I've just seen so many people in the media, Stephen A included again, um, Charles Barkley throughout the broadcast, other just reporters on Twitter and things just complaining about how boring Indiana is, how cold Indiana is. Why can't we have this in LA every year? Why can't we go to Miami this year? I feel like that kind of takes away from the history of the game and it doesn't project well on the NBA or the event of the All-Star game when in this case, they were really trying to highlight, again, the grassroots Indiana basketball feel with throwback warmups and all of these historical, again, commercials and interviews and things like that. So I do think the NBA can do a better job of changing that discourse in the media and things like that. But again, that's not that big of a deal. It's just something I noticed. The bigger deal is how do you get these players to compete on the court, right? How do you make the all-star game mean something again, besides just changing the media narrative of rings meaning everything, which is probably impossible to do at this point. But I've seen one strategy in particular being thrown around as the best way to get these players to compete. And I do personally think it is the smartest way to do this. It's to have the winning team get home court advantage in the finals. Obviously, the MLB already does this. Um, I'm seeing some people say that this is way too big of a thing to be offering up, especially when there's players in the All-Star game who aren't going to be necessarily in the running for the playoffs, much less the finals. So why should they care? 
I think this really matters on a coaching front because those players would quickly get sifted out of the lineup once the fourth quarter comes around. So I don't think that's much of a worry because I think these coaches who are the coaches of the number one seeds in each of the conference, they're going to want to win this game. So if they see a player isn't trying too hard in the game and isn't in contention for the finals, so like I said, isn't really putting forth that much effort throughout the game, once the fourth quarter and once the game time stretch is coming around, he's going to bench him, right? He's going to put in all the stars who are really trying that game and really in the running for the finals. And he knows that, whoever the coach may be. So I think the coaching aspect of the game takes the argument of if a player isn't in the running for the playoffs, they won't be trying. So that doesn't matter. The coaching takes that out of the equation. And then as far as a home court advantage being too big of an incentive, I really don't think it is. Strictly because how the NBA decides home court advantage right now, being the team with the best record between the two getting home court advantage is already not entirely fair because the schedules between the East and West aren't balanced. You play teams in your opposite conference less than you do the teams in your own conference. So it's not necessarily fair already if there's one weak conference and one really strong conference like we've seen with the West being really strong and the East being really weak. If there's one good team in the East, they're likely to have home court advantage in the finals no matter what, just because their schedule is going to be objectively easier. So in short, I do think this is the best route to go when trying to make the All-Star game more competitive. I've seen people say a cash incentive is really the only way to do this. And while I understand that, and I know players have been talking about money allegedly behind the scenes and they want to get paid for the All-Star game, I don't see that being much of a solution. I know people who have brought this up, have mentioned the play-in tournament, which was obviously a tremendous success this season. And the incentive behind that was 500000 each player, I believe. But I think the reason that was such a success and the biggest factor in that being such a success was that everyone on their teams was really playing for those guys at the end of the bench because they knew how much that meant. Because there are people in the NBA making a million or less on two-way contracts or 10-day contracts or whatever the case may be. So we saw LeBron talk about it en route to the Lakers winning the in-season tournament this year. He was talking about how he was playing for those guys at the end of the bench because he doesn't need the money. Those guys need the money. And in the All-Star game, obviously, there's none of those guys on small contracts. Everyone in the All-Star game is going to be making, you know, $30, $40 million a year. And if they're not, they're going to be very soon. So I think that kind of rules out the money being a factor. I mean, you could throw them some cash. You could throw them a large amount, like 750000 each or a million each. But then that's just, one, a lot of money for the league to be handing out. And then two, again, just not guaranteed to have these high caliber players who are already making 50x that um, to give their best effort. I think that just about wraps up everything I had to talk about for this episode. Again, Super Bowl. Very exciting. One of the best I've seen. Patrick Mahomes, top-tier quarterback. Travis Kelsey, all-time playoff performer now, both solidified. NBA All-Star game, pretty atrocious this year, I'm not going to lie. But some exciting aspects, some things they can work on. I'm really excited to see where Adam Silver in the league decides to take that if they do implement the home court advantage rule. I really want to see if that happens or not, see what that discussion is like in the offseason. But yeah, that just about wraps up today's episode. Like I said, to start off the show as well, I'll try to get more of a solidified schedule down for these moving forward, but you know, we'll see how that goes. So thank you all for listening until next time.